glyphosate, of course, is the active ingredient in Roundup. And Roundup is the most used herbicide on the planet, herbicide killing weeds. And the U.S. uses more Roundup per person than any other country in the world. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Dr. Mindy, back with you guys again. And today on this episode, I am bringing you one of my sheroes. Her name is Dr. Stephanie Seneff, and she is an MIT scientist who has been bringing to us for probably about a decade now the science behind glyphosate. So if you're not familiar with glyphosate, it is what they are spraying on so many of our food products. And it has a consequence to the human body. And so in this episode, Dr. Seneff unpacks with us exactly what is happening to our body when we're exposed to glyphosate and what we can do to repair the injuries that are that are occurring from glyphosate, but also lifestyles we can live to minimize the impact that glyphosate has on our health. So if glyphosate is new for you guys, you're going to want to take notes on this one. She is a scientist, so there is several moments that go very clinical, but hang in there because at the end of the uh, podcast interview, I really got her into some practical steps and she has a huge heart, a brilliant brain, and is absolutely, like I said, one of my favorite scientists that I have personally been following for years. So here you go. On this episode, we are going to talk all things glyphosate, and we are going to put the power back in your hands to be able to overcome any damage that this chemical is causing you. Enjoy. Hey, Recenters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the Academy. And I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My Academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. 
And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. Hi, Resetters, and welcome to Dr. Stephanie Sneff's episode. During the recording of this episode, Dr. Sneff did have somebody outside doing some gardening and blowing some leaves. So at certain times during this episode, you may hear a slight background noise, and we just wanted to come to you and let you know that that is just an outside leaf blower blowing some leaves around Dr. Sneff's house. We hope you enjoy. Well, I want to start off by just Jumping into this concept around glyphosate, we detox so many people in our clinic, in our online world, and glyphosate just keeps rearing its ugly head in the conversation, um, the conversations we have had. So part of why I wanted to bring you on to our podcast was really to help us understand glyphosate and start to unpack it because it's like this invisible thing that nobody's really talking about except you <laughs> and right. a lot of other people, but everybody's living the consequence of glyphosate. So can you start off by giving us some idea of like, how did you even get into studying glyphosate? I don't think that was on your list of uh, paths that you were looking to do. How did you get into yes. really understanding this chemical and what it's doing to human health? Yeah, that's an interesting story, actually, because I had about maybe 2007 time frame, I started getting interested in looking at autism and trying to figure out what environmental factors might be causing the increase, because autism rates were, have been going up dramatically, as you know, yeah. the past 20 years, and uh, we're hitting a really big crisis soon with all these kids aging out. Now we've got adult autism, we don't know what to do with those people. Yeah. But um I was really concerned and I knew it had to be something in the environment that was causing the increase. You know, there may be genetic risk, but genetics is not the reason for the epidemic. <laughs> you know, it can't yeah. be. So I knew it was something in the environment. And I was looking at vaccines quite a bit. I looked at things like fluoride and plastics, you know, all the things that are in our environment. Um, and I wasn't looking at glyphosate at all. I didn't even know the word, actually. So it's quite mm -hmm. serendipitous. I happened to. So five years into it, and I knew a lot more about autism at that point because I was reading all about autism, very complicated disorder with so many comorbidities, gut issues, and, you know, um, various deficiencies and various nutrients and whatnot. So, or imbalances, I mean, just a lot of things messed up biologically, metabolically with the autistic kids. And um, so I happened to be at this conference, I was giving a talk on statin drugs, actually, which I also hate. So that's a whole other story. That's a, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> I know. And, uh, and so there was this guy, you know, Don Huber, he was a professor, a retired professor from Purdue University, expert in plants, plant physiology, plant pathology, really nice guy. And he gave, um, he was giving a two hour presentation on glyphosate at that conference. And I'm like, Oh, what's that glyphosate? I don't even know what that is. I better go check that out. You know? And I was at the, on the edge of my seat because he was just explaining how it messes up the soil bacteria and then it messes up the gut bacteria and it causes these mineral deficiencies and it messes up the liver and it decreases your ability to detoxify other chemicals. And, and I, it was just like all lining up with, um, with autism, I already knew a lot about autism, the gut problems, and it just really hit home for me. And I was like, this is it, you know, and glyphosate, of course, is the active ingredient in Roundup. 
and Roundup is the most used herbicide on the planet, herbicide killing weeds. And the U.S. uses more Roundup per person than, than any other country in the world. So we're, we're basically, you know, the target for this yeah. chemical. Just to fill everybody in, because I, this is what's so fascinating about this concept to me, is that if everybody knows Roundup, and some people choose to not use Roundup in their garden because they're like, oh, my pets, you know, might not be good for my pets. But then we seem to be so uneducated on it when it's sprayed on our food and we're eating it every single day. That's so right. talk a little bit about like, what is it actually doing to the body and why is it so harmful? Because I believe there needs to be a wake up call on just that one point alone. Yes, it's an amazing molecule. And I've, I mean, I love science and I love puzzles and glyphosate is an enormous puzzle. It is such a fascinating molecule and it can really keep a scientist busy for many years figuring out all the things that it would do given its behavior in biology. It's quite, uh, I mean, it, it's just stunning um, the degree to which it disrupts everything really. And it does it through a really demonic mechanism that um, no other chemical does as far as I know, there's nothing else like it. And this is uh, the fact that it's an amino acid, and it's an amino acid analog of glycine. And glycine, it, so the amino acids are the coding um, units of the proteins with the DNA code. And most people know enough biology to know about DNA and the four-letter code. And then it's a three-letter sequence that codes for a particular amino acid. It's about 20 amino acids, so the code is redundant. But uh, glycine is the smallest amino acid. It has no side chains. And so there's... Um, the code for glycine has a little socket where it fits this tiny little glycine molecule and none of the other amino acids will fit in that, in that slot and therefore it can select for glycine. It does it by making it very tiny, just perfectly fitting glycine, nobody else. Glyphosate also fits because it is also a glycine molecule with no side chains. This is very, very important. It fits in that socket. What it has is extra material stuck onto its nitrogen atom and the nitrogen atom is outside of the socket because it has to hook up with the it's paper dolls hooking through the chain. The nitrogen needs to be outside of that hole in order to be able to hook up to the chain. So it can have extra stuff on it and still fit as long as its neighbors aren't crowding it too much. Right. So it's specific conditions under which glyphosate could substitute for glycine during protein synthesis. And if it does, the consequences are absolutely mind-blowing. Here's my question on glycine. Isn't glycine the, like, the nutrient that's needed for the intermucosal lining of the gut? Oh, glycine is needed for so many things. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. But the collagen, maybe you're thinking of the collagen, which is um, all over the body. Collagen is the most common protein by far in the body. 25% of our proteins are collagen molecules. And collagen has long swaths of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is a glycine, extremely glycine-rich. Wow. Okay. And collagen is in the joints, in the bones, in the, in the skin, in, in the brain. I mean, it's everywhere. And collagen disorders are something that we're seeing a lot of these days with different people having joint pain and you know, knee surgery and hip replacement surgery and foot problems. I mean, all these issues, we're seeing back problems. We have an epidemic, really, in all of these. Poor health. Absolutely. You hardly ever see someone over 50 who doesn't have some kind of aches and pains, it seems like, these days. You know, I, I see these people hobbling around. It's really sad. And I think the glyphosate is playing a major role in disrupting the collagen. Um, by substituting for glycine in collagen, disrupting the triple helix structure, collagen depends on that triple helix for all of its interesting properties with its um, um, tensile strength and its elasticity and its ability to hold water. All those things are really important for it to work properly. And, uh, and I think glyphosate's messing that up. That, um, I, I had never thought of it from the collagen 
path. And that actually makes amazing sense. Uh, we had also, when your work first came out, there was a lot of talk about the Shikimei pathway and, you know, people were like, what's that? And then this idea behind glyphosate disturbing that. Um, Absolutely. Talk, and yeah, that's talk a little I bit. Started. That was my yeah. first paper with Anthony Samso where we talked about glyphosate disrupting the gut microbiome, which I think is crucial. Yeah. Absolutely crucial. And that's where it hits first and it hits hard because the microbes, in fact, there's a new paper out that showed that 54% of the microbe species in our gut have are vulnerable to glyphosate through that shikimate pathway. So it's not like it's an uncommon thing in our gut microbiome. Right. And unfortunately, it it um, it preferentially kills the beneficial bacteria and allows the allows the pathogens to gain foothold. So lactobacillus and, and bifidobacteria are so important in the in the infant when they're born to get a strong you know grip on the gut and take over kind of. I mean, really, lactobacillus is supposed to be the dominant species in the infant gut. And they're getting clobbered by glyphosate, really preferentially killed, uh, which then makes the baby unable actually to drink milk, you know, because the lactobacillus provides a lot of specialized enzymes that break down uh, gluten, they break down uh, casein, or at least these complex proteins that are difficult to digest. You need the lactobacillus to help you break those down. So that's how we get gluten intolerance, casein intolerance. I'm absolutely confident that gluten intolerance is a direct consequence of glyphosate in the wheat. And this is something people also don't realize because wheat is sprayed now routinely with glyphosate right before harvest. Yeah. We, well, we, we've, we've noticed that if you go, if you go to a country that doesn't spray their wheat with glyphosate, that all of a sudden you can eat their gluten and eat their, it's, it's crazy the difference. And here it's in amazing America, that, yeah. you know, people should just figure that out. And it should just be done. It just should be common knowledge at this point. I feel, you know, that you life the reason for the gluten intolerance. I'm actually quite interested lately in the, uh, in the States, in the northern, northwestern part of the United States, North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho, Montana, these states are all on fire right now with COVID-19, which is very interesting. They took a long time for the virus to arrive, but it arrived in style and just shot up, you know, incredible infection spread. And in the rural parts of those, of those uh, states, so I've looked into North Dakota in more detail, and it really looks like it's, to me, it seems striking that it would make sense that they're spraying stuff like wheat right before harvest. I mean, this is right the time to spray the wheat. And, and they've got all these crops that they grow for biofuels. They're probably doing a lot of spraying of glyphosate on those crops uh, for, right before the harvest. This is the time of year to do that. And that's when the COVID-19 took off. It's quite interesting. It, it, it's funny because my husband sent me an article in North Dakota, and it showed that one in 800 people are dying of COVID there. And I said, I don't think that's a function of the, the virulence of COVID. What are the North, North Dakotans exposed to? What's their lifestyle like? Like, what do we know about the immune compromised part of, of what those people are living in? And now you've given me another. And I want to dive into COVID and glyphosate. Yeah, we'll do that later. But that's we, just a hint because. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, okay, just so that if you're listening to this for the first time and you're like, well, what is this? Let's make it as applicable as we possibly can. So glyphosate is sprayed on all crops or just no. So what are the biggest glyphosate sprayed crops? Well, certainly the, non, the GMO crops, you know, those are the um, and these are go into the processed food industry, soy, corn, um, sugar beets, um, alfalfa, which is interesting. It's kind of an odd one. But, um, that is odd. Yeah, and, and canola. So you've got canola oil, and then you've got the soy protein, and then you've got the sugar from the sugar beets. Those are basic core foods, uh, foods core ingredients of, uh, you know, soy protein bar and things like that. So um, 
those foods are going to be contaminated because they're sprayed. Uh, and you can just spray the glyphosate all over the crop and it won't die because it's been engineered, by the way, with a version of that enzyme, the EPSP synthase, in the chicken pathway that does not have glycine at the critical spot. That's how they make that enzyme safe, by getting rid of that glycine. That's crucial because that's a huge hint right. that it's that glycine residue getting substituted is how glyphosate is doing its damage to that protein. Okay, so it so it's sprayed on these major crops, and then when we eat it, all the chemical reactions you're talking about happen to us. And um, one thing I want to go into is my initial understanding of glyphosate was, well, then you just eat organic. But the problem has gotten so big now that it's it's more of an environmental issue. Uh, right. is the way that's that I, another part of the problem. Yeah. And certainly when I first started realizing glyphosate and I was trying to figure out, is it in the water? Is it in the food? Is it in the air? Where? How are people getting exposed? It's a question I still can't entirely answer. Like, what is the biggest uh, avenue of exposure? I'm sort of thinking it's the food, which means it's everybody. Right. You know, and so I said the GMO crops, but it's also a bunch of crops that are sprayed right before harvest as a desiccant. And that's where the wheat comes in. And that's wheat, barley, oats, um, Oats is a big one because oats are coming out with high levels, like children's oat cereals, you know, and oatmeal cookies. Wow. Um, and then wheat-based products, of course, like those little uh, goldfish crackers, all these things that kids like to eat, the Oreo cookies, those things are all contaminated with glyphosate. So the kids are getting a heavy dose in these popular foods. And um, they're thinking, mom buys non-GMO, I'm safe. And that is just not true. In fact, even um, the, the chickpeas and the garbanzo beans, you know, sort of people saying eating hummus, hummus seems like a really healthy food, loaded with glyphosate. Canada, the government, did all kinds of testing of different um, foods for glyphosate levels and found the highest levels in these uh, beans, uh, chickpeas and garbanzo beans. So lots of times when people go on a, a gluten-free diet, they start eating a lot more beans, you know. Right. And they're getting poisoned by glyphosate. So they're going out of the firing, firing pan into the fire to some extent. Yes. Yeah. And it is, it makes sense when you stop and think about like all the allergies we have, the food allergies, like, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have a peanut table, like, a, you know, know, peanut free table. Like we have to stop and like take a step back and go, okay, what is causing all these allergies? Because it doesn't make sense. And, and who would have ever thought that beans and a piece of bread had anything in common that could I be know. damaging? I know. That's right. It's really amazing, isn't it? And you have a lot of kids that have, you know, sent allergy to their mom's milk. And, and breast milk is showing up with glyphosate in it. Then they put them on a soy formula. They probably get worse because the soy probably has even more glyphosate than the breast milk. Wow. It's just terrible. Yeah, so let's start with with kids. What are the what are some of the um, the symptoms or conditions that we're seeing with kids who are getting a chronic exposure of glyphosate? Yeah, now obviously autism is a really big one, and I've done a huge amount of research under, uh, to understand how it affects autism. I think it's very clear, and um, ADHD I suspect is also being caused by it. obesity for sure. I mean, I really can see obesity following glyphosate around the world. You can, it's quite interesting when you see a country sort of start to adopt a Western diet, they start to get fat. It happens all around the world. And the United States is pretty much the fattest country in the world. Yeah. I mean, for, among the big countries, there's some tiny countries like that might be uh, have a higher population of fat people. But among the major countries, we're by, you know, we're really out there. And of course, obesity is also a risk, a very strong risk factor for bad outcome with COVID nineteen. Right, right. I think it's a marker of glyphosate exposure. Yeah, and on the obesity concept, um, I think what I in in the world that we live in, we see so many people that are like, "I'm eating well, 
I'm doing all the right, I'm exercising well, I'm doing all the right things and I'm not losing weight. And our, our normal line at that point is it's got to be a toxic issue. Yes. And what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is glyphosate is one of those number one toxins that yes. has to be addressed. And in fact, I can give you a specific protein that I've really zeroed in on that I suspect is a major player in the glyphosate. Please. I mean, there's certain proteins that I can tell would be much more susceptible. You know, you have the GXY, GXY, GXY in the collagen. Plenty of glycines to substitute there. The EPSP synthase has glycine in a particular setup where it binds phosphate. It's a place where the protein binds phosphate. So you can generalize that to look at other proteins that bind phosphate at places where they have glycines that are highly conserved and therefore very important to the protein. So you can find other proteins that match EPSP synthase that are human proteins that you can predict would also be affected. And so one that I've zeroed in on is PEPCK, phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase, kind of a mouthful. That's a critical protein in the uh, liver and one thing that it does is it, it, it converts fat into sugar. It's a, it's a gluconeogenesis. It's a critical mm. protein for the liver's ability to convert other kinds of food sources into sugar. And it's critical for when, like, if you exercise a lot and your blood sugar drops down, then the body normally says, okay, PEPCK, get going. Make, it, make some sugar for us, you know, to help to bring the sugar back up because otherwise you're going to go into a coma. And in fact, uh, it, they've done studies with mice where they, mice born with PEPCK deficiency, they die only a few days after birth and they, 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 they develop um, very low blood sugar and die of a coma. And we have kids that are dying of uh, SIDS, I suspect it may be connected to that, that they've got this PEPCK supposed to kick in big time when you're born. You have to start, before that, you've got sugar circulating from your mom, you don't have to worry about it. And now you've got to be able to convert these other foods into sugar in order to keep your blood sugar high. And if you can't do that, you can die of a coma as, a, as an infant. And that's, a, that's a known uh, disability that's associated with PEPCK deficiency. And then, as, and then the interesting thing is that if you've got a PEPCK in the liver that's not functioning properly, your body changes its set point for glucose. It says, you know, you know what, we can risk, we've observed mm. experimentally, we can risk getting our blood sugar too low. We better raise the set point. So make sure there's more in case we do get into a situation where there's too much exercise. Uh, we, we have a buffer. And so then you get this elevated blood sugar that's a precursor to diabetes. You know, so I think it's a direct it's, path to diabetes. And then you can't process the fat. So you end up storing the fats on your body. A certain, you know, genetic predisposition, people just tend to lose, gain weight. In the context of not being able to turn those fats into sugar, your body says, well, let's store fat so we'll have it available in case we're going to need it sometime because of this, again, this whole situation of we can't now turn that fat into sugar because we've got this problem with PEPCK, but we've got to, we've got to you know, just store it there because we're worried. You know, the body gets kind of worried about this situation of a potential yeah. low blood sugar. So I think it can explain, that alone can explain some, and of course the fatty liver disease also, which is an epidemic going up in exactly in step with, with glyphosate usage and directly related to PEPCK deficiency. PEPCK deficiency in, in rats causes fatty liver disease. And glyphosate wow. has been shown to cause fatty liver disease. And recent experiments have shown with rats exposed to glyphosate below the regulatory limits uh, on per day basis, the, the amount, uh, according to the US EPA, which is a very generous number, <laughs> below the limit, they get uh, fatty liver disease. And wow. exposed to glyphosate and they get and, and the other st studies have shown metrics of different uh, up, you know increases in certain metrics that indicate liver problems that are showing up in with glyphosate exposure in other uh, experiments with animals so the whole thing really fits very nicely 
that glyphosate is disturbing PEPCK in the liver and causing all these problems. So you just answered a huge question for me because our in our world, um, we do a lot of fasting. We have about 300,000 people online that we fast together all, every month. And so we have analyzed blood sugar up and down and all around. And some people really struggle with fasting. Mm. And some people are will ask me questions like, I'm doing all the right things. Like we teach them how to go in and out of different types of fasts and how to create a metabolic switching effect in their bodies. And then there are those people that have that stubborn blood sugar. And I always bring it back to the liver. And I'm like, there's a dysfunction in the liver. And what am I correct in hearing you say, yes, and that dysfunction, a piece of that is the presence of glyphosate. I think so. I think it's glyphosate. And of course, it's not just PEPCK. There's a number of other liver enzymes that are messed up. And in particular, uh, glutathione, that's another big one. I've done a a lot of looking at glutathione. They've shown in papers, again, that glyphosate depletes glutathione in the liver. It causes uh, oxidative damage, oxidative stress, which causes the the glutathione. You probably know about glutathione. Yes, I do. Yep. Yeah. And then the enzymes that maintain glutathione in its reduced form get disrupted by glyphosate according to this phosphate theory that I have, if that's true, those enzymes are going to get disrupted and the body won't be able to keep glutathione in its reduced form, which is the way that it needs to be protective. So it's all oxidized. What's there is oxidized and there's not enough because it's also using up the glutathione. Um, I think glutathione is getting specifically directly hit by glyphosate because it contains glycine. Glutathione has three amino acids and one of them is glycine. And in fact, there's a brand new paper. I just haven't quite read it yet. I've looked at it. Um, a correlating liver disease um, with uh, glycine uh, deficiency in the blood, low glycine in the blood, and finding with a rat study that they could um, give them glycine supplements that actually help to fix their fatty liver disease, which makes sense to me because the the oxidative damage is part of that whole story with the mitochondria getting messed up and then they can't, you know, this whole gluconeogenesis is getting busted. I mean, a lot of things are going bad in the liver. The liver gets hit really hard by yeah. because it's sort of right there in the path, you know, and it's the one that's supposed to detox. So it's, right, it's supposed to get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. What, um, so, uh, you know, when I went into researching COVID, when we first went into this pandemic, there were three things based off of the science that I reviewed that was showing was making somebody immune compromised. The first was what we've already talked about, which was obesity and what I call being a sugar burner, like your, your blood sugar imbalance, diabetes. The second was glutathione, low glutathione. Yeah. Right, and then right. the third, the third that keeps emerging is low vitamin D. Exactly, I was going to say that glutathione, vitamin D. Yeah, those two are really important. They're both low, and uh, in people who are susceptible to, to bad outcomes with COVID nineteen. And so, what I'm hearing is the like it's where my brain originally was is like, okay, well, let's get your blood sugar balanced. Let's get off toxins and up your glutathione and let's get you out in the sun. Let's get you, you know, taking a supplement there. So, and then that that's one step forward to us being immune strong again. And what I'm now hearing from you is, yeah, as long as glyphosate's in our environment and in our food, you're going to have to keep doing that routine over and over and yeah, over again. You've got to be super careful with the glyphosate. And of course, not just in your food, make sure it's not in your water. Worry about your air, especially with the biofuels. Yep. That's where I really think it's, it gets Yeah, really I want to talk about that. 
Yeah. yeah, it's really scary. I mean, it's like you can't just be good. I mean, like we eat organic. We never buy anything to the, at the grocery store that's not certified organic. Yeah, we just you know if we can't find it, we sometimes get frustrated because we've got a menu, we have, you know, a recipe we want to try, and we can't get one of the ingredients, so we just either leave that one out or <laughs> you know we're very strict. Yeah, in my household, and we've seen you know significant improvement in our health. My husband has almost dropped all of his um, medications and he, you know, he has a uh, heart disease and that di- adult onset diabetes and those things have basically disappeared. He no longer wow. has them. He doesn't take any diabetes medication. It's amazing. And we get a lot of sun because we're over here in Kauai. Where- I was going to ask you where you were because you, you're definitely not where I am. I, I came I with a sweater and a scarf and you look like you're ready to go on the beach. And now I know why. Yeah, yeah. we're so yeah. lucky. We cut over here just before Thanksgiving. We're going to oh. stay the whole winter. So it's really a haven. I, mean, I think it's probably the best place to be in this country right now with the COVID-19 situation. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. so. Um, is there a half-life to glyphosate? Uh, excellent question, and it's a complicated answer. Uh, Monsanto claims that it, um, first of all, they claim that it goes straight through your body, like you um, you basically pretty much push it back out unchanged or maybe change it to AMPA. There's some, you know, there's some ability to, to modify it slightly, and then it doesn't really break down, and it goes out through your urine and through your feces, and in a couple of weeks, it's gone. That's the argument they give. They know that's not true because they found in their own experiments from the 1980s that it, it accumulates in the tissues, uh, throughout the tissues of, of animal species that they exposed to radio-labeled glyphosate. They were able to find the radio-label in the tissue, so they know that some of it, and I think it's probably a small percentage of what you consume, yeah. ends up in your tissues, ends up in these proteins, and sometimes causes those proteins to misfold to the point where they can't be cleared, like that it breaks down the ability to break down the protein. That's when it gets really serious. That's how you end up with Alzheimer's disease, because the amyloid beta plaque that's associated with Alzheimer's disease has a particular sequence, GXXX, 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 GXXX. It's like a, these glycines are equally spaced, glycines with these three wild cards in the middle. Okay. And those glycines are all vulnerable to glyphosate substitution. And again, it forms this alpha helix and goes into the membrane. And they know that if you replace those glycines with something else, it no longer forms an alpha helix. It instead becomes a beta sheet and ends up in the cytoplasm, a soluble protein in the cell's inner space. And when enough of those um, messed up fibrils uh, accumulate, they glom together and form this, this plaque that's associated with Alzheimer's. So I think that's a major way in which glyphosate could be causing Alzheimer's is through substituting for glycine in the amyloid beta. But so I, we have prion proteins too that are um, not able to be digested. So basically glyphosate disrupts the, the body's ability to break down proteins in general through the various enzymes that it messes up. And, so and it, especially, yeah, go ahead. No, so it comes in, it does damage. And so it really, what I'm hearing is it doesn't really matter what the half-life is because it takes, yeah. once it gets into the body, it wreaks havoc and right. it, it, and then you get exposed again. I mean, the other thing is if it's everywhere. It exposure. Yeah, yeah it's just a bioaccumulation. Most of it probably leaves your body uh, intact or, or even maybe gets modified. I'm hoping the gut microbes can break it down. And I know there are some... Uh, microbes that can break glyphosate down. It has a tough um, CP bond, it's called. It's very difficult for most species to break down. That's why it's so sturdy. That's attached to its, um, its uh, nitrogen atom, you know. This, mm-hmm. But there's a CP bond that's on the piece that's attached to the nitrogen atom, which is what makes it a very interesting, one of the things that makes it an interesting molecule. Um, and there are microbes that can break it down. One of them is acetobacter, and this makes me hope that um, fermented foods might contain microbes that could break it down, which would be super, super awesome. So I've wondered if some people who seem to be pretty tough against glyphosate, they may have 
harbored in their gut microbiome species that are able to metabolize the glyphosate, which I think would be fantastic. And hopefully somebody can figure out, you know, how to come up with a supplement that would provide you with something like that, because that would be really a, a game or you changer. Just but but the only the cool thing about that concept for I'm smiling because I we talk about fermented foods all the time and I feel like fermented foods is the hero of the day yet so many people don't do it but the cool thing about a fermented food is it doesn't cost a lot of money you can take some cabbage cut it up put it in a jar leave it on your countertop and you can create it on your own uh, these bacteria that will help and, and now and now I'm going to add to my thought process break down glyphosate that's yes I think it would be really wonderful of course there's also vitamin K2 I think that's provided by those fermented foods. And vitamin K2 is another vitamin that's been shown to be um, connected to COVID-19. Vitamin D, vitamin K2, and also vitamin C, deficiencies in any of those um, connected to COVID-19. Wow. Vitamin D is interesting because glyphosate has been shown in multiple studies to disrupt the cytochrome P450 enzymes in the liver. And those en enzymes have a lot of things they do. One of the things is to detox other toxic chemicals. Another thing is to make bile acids. But a third thing is to activate vitamin D. So when those livers are, when those liver enzymes are dis disrupted, vitamin D activation becomes impaired. And we have an absolute epidemic in vitamin D deficiency in our country yeah, right now. And I'm wondering to what extent glyphosate exposure is causing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So, and are there certain organs that it can, that it'll destroy more? Like you talked about the liver, we talked about the joints, we know the brain, thyroid, like the endocrine. Thyroid, are there, definitely yeah. thyroid. Yeah. In fact, studies have shown on rats, you know, they, I think it was in a study where they exposed pregnant rats and it might've been mice. I always get mixed up on which one, Pre pregnant rodents <laughs> to uh, glyphosate. And then they um, they looked specifically, they were suspecting thyroid disorder, and they looked specifically at the pups after they were born. And the pups were exposed just indirectly through the mom. And um, and the pups had a, a dysregulated thyroid hormone system. It, it was clear that it had dis disrupted the way it, it wasn't behaving normally. I mean, thyroid, the whole thyroid system is really fascinating and very, um, I've gotten engaged with it recently, actually, because uh, uh, this whole, I don't know if you, about, if you know about reverse T3. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause I test for it on our thyroid patients and nobody's testing for it, but I, I know it as adrenal stress. So yeah, uh, give me a new perspective. So, so interesting because of course the thyroid hormone system is very complicated. You know, there's the, the initial hormone, the thyroid stimulating hormone that comes from, I think from the pituitary gland that, um, that then tells the thyroid to make thyroid hormone. And then, uh, and then of course, thyroid hormone also comes from one of those uh, amino acids that come out of the shikimate pathway. So the glyphosate disrupts the pathway that produces the precursor to, to thyroid hormone. It's a really slightly modified tyrosine um, molecule, and tyrosine is one of those three amino acids. So there's a problem right there. But then um, it gets really interesting with the way the thyroid hormone is distributed in the body because, you know, it starts off as T4. It has four um, iodides. And then there's this uh, T4 to T3 conversion by DIO2 and DIO1, those are diiodinase. So these enzymes take off one of the, of the, um, of the iodides Iodine. to turn it to T3. And then um, there's this reverse uh, DIO3, which converts it to reverse T3, taking off a, an inner iodide rather than an outer ring iodide. And that produces a version of thyroid hormone that not only is inactive, it can't, it can't do what thyroid hormone normally does, but it actually blocks regular thyroid hormone yeah. from getting in. So it's a double hit. I mean, it's not just that it doesn't work, but it actually actively interferes with 
thyroid hormone uptake. So when you're producing reverse T3, for whatever reason, you're blocking the thyroid hormone system. You're intentionally trying to keep it from happening. And I, that's extremely interesting to me. And this is something I'm looking at into lately, and I haven't written anything up yet, although I'm working on a chapter of a book on this topic right now because um, it's so fascinating because the reverse T3 is taken up through um, what's called clathrin-coated pits. There's a sort of a endocytosis, you know, where you bring in stuff from the outside. The piece, a piece of the membrane actually pinches off and comes in and becomes like a little a lipid particle inside the cell. And, this, um, and these, this reverse T3 comes in that way. And when it comes in, it's no longer on the surface, so it can't actually do it. It can't turn that T4 into reverse T3. It, it's, it's active when it's outside the cell. So okay. if that endocytosis is busted, the reverse T3 hangs out on the outside of the cell a long time. It doesn't get cleared. And therefore, it's able to do a lot more damage, able to convert a lot more T4 and get rid of it. And what causes those clathrin-coated pits to stay stuck on the membrane is really fascinating. I've only just recently discovered papers on this topic. There's a, there's a world full of interesting papers out there. It's yeah, if you, right? <laughs> yeah, it's I've so been, amazing. I always call it a rabbit hole. I go to look at one study and the I next know. thing I know, like three hours are gone and I've got like 10 windows open trying to correlate all the studies. Yeah, so. I totally understand because I'm, I'm in that all the time. I'm like, I got to get back to this paper. Oh, but I got to go look over here. This is right. So Right. You see the headline. You see the headline on like the side of PubMed. And you're like, oh, well, that could be. But th- I'm not done with this one. That's exactly, I know. Yeah. You just get into a feeding frenzy. And that's yeah. kind of what happened with me with this thyroid hormone story because gosh, it's really complicated. But the really key thing, I think, is the clathrin coated pits get stuck on the surface. They don't come in. They, they are unable to come in. And what causes that is a stiff matrix. So they, if they get stuck to a stiff surface, they kind of like stick like glue and they can't come in. And, and this is called frustrated endocytosis. I love that term. In the, this paper is about frustrated endocytosis. They're finding out that these clathrin coated pits are, are basically just these, these wide swaths that won't, they can't curl up. That whole process of curling up and snipping off has gotten broken. And it's gotten broken because the matrix is stiff. And the matrix is stiff because there's not enough sulfate. And that is so beautiful because sulfate's where I started. With the autism, even before I knew about glyphosate, I understood that autism has a major problem with sulfate, insufficient sulfate and poor sulfate homeostasis, inability to manage sulfate correctly. That's a key feature of autism. It will cause the stiff matrix, which will cause the, um, the reverse T3 to kick in and not be able to be cleared, which will cause thyroid deficiency. And it's very smart because it actually relates to mitochondrial disorder which is what I'm going to tie together in this chapter, that the sulfate deficiency links directly to uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. It's which all everybody has. Everybody's got dysfunctional mitochondria. And, and everybody- that's where you have to turn off the thyroid because the thyroid, you want to not be able to use much energy because you don't have enough energy. So you get really exhausted. These people are just chronically fatigued, you know, with the thyroid dysfunction. Yeah. yeah, and then they walk in their medical doctor's office, and the medical doctor decides to test TSH and says either you're okay or you're not okay. And if you're not okay, we'll put you on meds. But nowhere in that process did they look at things like reverse T3 and toxic uh, loads and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and when you and when you do have the reverse T3 problem, you can be taking all the T4 you want. It's not going to work. It might even make things worse because you'll right. make more reverse T3 and have a better blockage. You know, it could yeah. make things worse. And that's what I'm finding papers that are saying, if we treat these people with T3 instead of T4, we get a much better result. 
Yeah. Wow. So let's go into some help, like practical stuff for people, because I, I, I really want people to understand the magnitude of this one chemical. And I mean, I've spent so much time understanding toxins and this one, like I said, just keeps showing up over and over again. So it's in our food. It's in our air. Is it in our rain? Is it in our? Yes, it is in the rain. And, and, and so there was a study in Kentucky, I think, that was um, they looked at um, toxic chemicals in the rain. Uh, it, and I don't remember the exact dates. It might have been like two, 2016 versus sometime in the 1990s, two different data points. And they, and they said that back then they didn't even measure glyphosate, but this time they measured glyphosate. And they found a lot of the other chemicals were actually lower. Today's they were doing better. Because, and that's probably in part because of glyphosate, because glyphosate is displacing other toxic herbicides that are no longer being used as much. I mean, that's been the whole argument for why we should be using all this glyphosate is because these other herbicides are allegedly much more toxic. But glyphosate oh, is insidiously, cumulatively toxic. So you don't, it, it, it's not as obvious that it's toxic because in terms of um, acute toxicity, it looks pretty good, you know? It's because it's, it's like the mechanism of toxicity is so subtle and, and slow. Interesting. And it reminds me a little bit of the debate between methyl and ethyl mercury in vaccines that, you know, well, ethyl doesn't, we can't find it anywhere, but they forgot to look in the brain. I feel like this is the same argument. Like it doesn't appear to be doing any damage, but what they're not looking for is these proteins that have been changed and the blood sugar that's off. And they're not looking at the right particular situation is that the way you would you would describe absolutely. it absolutely i mean i think because it's slow and subtle uh, if you, you do these and in fact you know monsanto even way back when when they were studying it that the industry decided that if you look for three months um at animal studies three months is good enough you don't have to look any longer if you don't see any evidence of harm after three months you know then this chemical is great it's no problem and they used that to to, to decide that life state was okay and there was this guy, Seralini, in France. I don't know if you know about Seralini's work. I do. But yeah, I've, I've heard that of was, yeah. yeah, that was the first paper I read, actually, after I came back from hearing Huber talk, and I started diving in. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60 day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me. 
my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. I read an article that one of your theories around the immune COVID and glyphosate is that the areas we saw the biggest outbreaks were the ones that had the biggest glyphosate exposure. Um, but it was an environmental exposure. It wasn't a food exposure and Wuhan, China being one of those. So yes. take us through that and, and help us understand what happened in Wuhan, what happened in New York, what happened in Italy? Is there exactly. a connection between all of these places with glyphosate? Yeah, that's what I think. And of course, those are major um, centers, uh, international centers. So they have a lot of flights coming in. They have a chance for exposure. I mean, mm. it starts with just having the virus arrive at all, right? And so it's moving around the, the continents in right. airplanes and getting delivered to those major places. But those three, um, those three places have in common um, biofuels uh, and biofuels from crops that are likely to be contaminated with glyphosate. So that's okay. kind of where I started with that. And of course, glyphosate in the air is very different from glyphosate in your food because you're going to breathe it and it's going to hit your lungs first. So it's going to mess up your lungs most, right? It's going right. to be an impact on the lungs. And I know, I mean, I've written about how glyphosate affects the immune system and, and weakens the immune system, the innate immunity. And that okay. also has to do with the collagen, actually, because you have these immune, the immune cells make these really fancy molecules that have a collagen-like stalk on them. Mm -hmm. And those, those proteins can go out and snitch. They can snap the viruses. They can trap them like the fly trap and then allow the immune cells to clear them, to, 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 to remove them. So those uh, proteins are really important. And there's, those are surfactant proteins in the lungs that are able to, um, to stick onto the virus and, uh, and, and make it easy for the lungs to find them and to clear them. Okay. And so, and I think those proteins are being affected by glyphosate because of that collagen-like stalk that's getting uh, disrupted by the glyphosate. So there, when I, one of the initial um, studies I saw was showing that these areas, Wuhan, Italy, New York, they all had high air pollution. And we had this particle, the PM 2.5 particle. So um, in that were heavy metals. And now I'm, you got me thinking, is glyphosate inside that Inside That's air what I'm suspecting. That's what I'm suspecting. In fact, air pollution is extremely interesting. And I, what I did was I, I looked at air pollution uh, uh, countries, countries' uh, levels of particle, nanoparticles, um, different countries, and their uh, death rate from COVID-19. And I plotted those two against each other. And it's really, really quite remarkable because it's definitely not a linear increase. It's not at all. In fact, it almost goes the opposite way. The countries that have really bad air pollution have very low COVID-19 death rate. And the countries that have relatively good air pollution have high COVID-19 death rate, absolute opposite of what you're seeing. Now, we've got four papers so far that I'm aware of, three from Europe, one from the United States, that showed a correlation between the death rate from, correlation, uh, death rate from COVID and air pollution nanoparticles. Okay. So in the United States and in Europe, it looks like it's correlated. But in the world, it's not. The places okay. that have really high, really, really bad air pollution, much worse than us, like Nigeria. So Nigeria is a really interesting country. And I looked into that one a great deal because Nigeria has very bad air pollution. Like 94% of the population is exposed to air pollution above the levels that, um, that the WHO considers to be safe. And they've got like, like the most polluted, 20, 2016, they talked about the most polluted city in the world was in Nigeria. And, um, and Nigeria has, their death rate from COVID-19 is one one-hundredth of ours. It's not like a small difference. It's mm. one one-hundredth. Huge. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's not air pollution. It's glyphosate. I think it's air pollution plus biofuels. And I think glyphosate is a critical player, I suspect. 
And whether it's, you know, it might even be that glyphosate is producing, um, you know, phosph- some kind of phosph- phosphorus particles because you've got the nit- nitrogen oxides, the um, um, carbon monoxide. I mean, these are things that show up in air pollution. And I'm wondering whether the glyphosate, so the glyphosate will get metabolized if, it's, if it gets, com- goes through combustion. There's no question. But glyphosate is pretty stable. It requires a pretty high temperature to break down. Yep. But combustion should beat that temperature and should break it down. But you do have leaky, um, you have, you know, terribly um, un- mistuned, untuned engines. You think of buses that are spewing black smoke out the back, right? I mean, I've gotten caught in the black smoke where the bus takes off and it practically, you know, right. <laughs> doubled down. Um, the buses and the trucks, you know, that are, right. that are yeah. driving on this biofuel and spewing this stuff out. I suspect a certain, and I know there's actually organic molecules in that. They know that there's an organic component to those toxic fumes. And the question is whether glyphosate is among them because glyphosate is pretty sturdy. It's pretty hard to break it down. And if it doesn't actually get to the combustion point before it evaporates, it's going to be, if it's hot, it's going to evaporate. So I feel like there's a distinct possibility that it's actually getting released into the air from the burning uh, of, uh, of the fuel in a poorly tuned old bus, you know, type of vehicle. I think it's quite possible. New York City had like 11,000 buses that were running on biofuel. New York City has been a very proud leader in the biofuel industry. And part of that is being at the mouth of a big a river and a river system. And I'm seeing that the, um, the cities, and when you look at the early phase of COVID, the cities that were getting really hard hit were at the mouth of rivers. Boston's one of them actually where I live. Boston and New York City and Washington, D.C. And, and New Orleans, they're all at the mouth of a major river system, which is where you can do biofuels because you, you have all these crops and you, put the, you scrape the crop off after you've killed it with glyphosate and then you put it on the barge and you take it down to a, to a facility where it's processed into fuel in the city, you know. And, of course, and the facility may be released. releasing glyphosate too. So it could yeah. be on the barge that it's getting released. It could be, in the, it could be at the gas tank when they're filling, filling up the, you know, the, the gas. You've got vapors coming out. I mean, all those places are possibilities. So we don't well, know. Nobody's done the research, so it's all speculation. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. I live in California. And so one of the things that has been this inconsistent leadership that we continue to see just across the world, but here in America for sure, is that we have these great laws against glyphosate that they know that were put into action but yet we're vaccinating every child i know uh, so That's very ta- inconsistent, isn't it? It's very inconsistent. So talk to us a little bit about glyphosate and vaccines because there's a, that's another one that, that people aren't one. understanding yes. yes absolutely oh it's just terrible i really feel um awful about the whole situation right now with with the coming sars-cov-2 yep. vaccine i just can't even Imagine what's going to happen, but um, glyphosate be I, in that one. I don't. I, I don't know. I hope not. I've been trying to figure out what is in it. It has some interesting things in it, um, but it isn't. But it is done very differently from the way these other ones are. The ones that are um, contaminated with glyphosate have been found to be contaminated by Zen Honeycutt and also by my friend Anthony Samsel I mentioned earlier. Both of them independently tested a number of different vaccines, and both of them consistently found it in the live virus vaccines. And as highest levels by far, in both cases, were in the MMR vaccine, which is extremely interesting because that's the one everyone's been saying is causing autism. Right. And I think the glyphosate is a major, a major player there because it's, um, it's making everything else much more acute. So the, the, the immune system, especially because the child, if, she's, if the child's also already been exposed to glyphosate through the food and whatnot, 
their immune system is weak, their innate immune system is weak. And so the, um, the adaptive system goes on fire. This is really what's happening, I think, in our country. The adaptive system over, overreacts because the innate immune system is not doing its job. And that's wow. how you get autoimmune disease because it, you, know, you produce these antibodies from the vaccine, which is what you're supposed to do. That means the vaccine took. But if you get those antibody, uh, antibodies produced in the brain because you've got you know, vulnerable brain barrier, the measles virus is a live virus. It can actually infect the brain. And the brain's immune system develops antibodies. And then those antibodies attack the myelin sheath. That's a complete story that I've seen in a series of papers published by a professor saying S-I-N-G-H, and, and colleagues in Salt Lake City, um, Utah State University, I think it was. And they've, back since the 1990s, he, they've been suggesting that this is how MMR could cause autism, is through um, this hema, hemagglutinin, which is a protein that the virus makes. And that's the protein that you need to get antibodies to in order for the virus, for the vaccine to take. And that protein has three glycines in it that line up with three glycines in um, myelin uh, basic protein. So there's a, there's a sequence that has a, a lot of similarity between the hemagglutinin and the myelin basic protein. So the theory they propose, which is quite reasonable, and that you can even verify it from data, from data on autistic kids, that the... Um, that once the virus bridged, got, so the virus would sort of infect the gut and then it would get into the brain because it's a leaky system because of the glyphosate exposure. And then the right. brain, and then if you, I think you might even have glycine substitution by glyphosate in that protein, in that hemagglutinin, because the, the virus is being grown on glyphosate. It's being fed during the development of the, of the virus, of the vaccine. They're feeding the virus um, uh-huh. materials that are contaminated with glyphosate. So the glyphosate, so the virus puts that glyphosate into that hemagglutinin and makes it very difficult to break it down, makes it very allergenic and makes the immune system go on fire. And then if it gets into the brain, the brain's immune system develops these antibodies that then attack the myelin sheath through molecular mimicry. It's quite an amazing story if it's yeah. true. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, certainly so many parents have said, my kid was fine. They got the MMR, then they regressed into autism. It has to be something to that, you know? Why do you think we don't have enough research on glyphosate or are we just not, it, it's the only person expressing the research is you and a handful <laughs> of other scientists. Like why, when I, you know, when I, the more I study what this, a chemical like this can do on the human body, it seems like if you were a compassionate, intelligent person, you would want to understand what this is doing to our children, what it's doing to our bodies. Why don't we have enough research on it? I think it's most, of course, Monsanto is very powerful. And people who do dare to go there often uh, get their funding cut off. I mean, you really get punished for, for, for showing something like that because there's so much money behind something like, like glyphosate. Yeah. And um, the industry is very, very powerful. And the industry, for example, the industry funds most of the um, agricultural component, you know, schools in, in various colleges. So they, they're getting uh, all this funding from place, places like Monsanto. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. So you're not going to choose to study the product that your funder yep. uh, produces if, if you're getting, if you want to keep your money going. And, um, you know, Seralini got in a lot of trouble when he published his paper. I told, oh, I didn't finish that story, I think, as he did, he, he did those rats. He, he, he exposed them to rats for their entire lifespan, way beyond the three months. But he did the same experiment that Monsanto had done Monsanto only did it for three months. He did it for the entire lifespan. And that's when he found liver damage, kidney damage, 
reproductive issues in both males and females, major mammary tumors in the females. I mean, all kinds of evidence of harm after three months. At three months, it looked pretty good. They couldn't really tell the difference. Yeah. So um, that paper got retracted. And That's, then it got republished, yeah. It did get republished. Okay, I'll have to go find out. That, so this is the same debate we're having on the COVID vaccine, is that we've got this rush to get it to the public. But um, if we don't have any long-term studies of what happens after two months, three months, um, we don't know what the long-term effects will be. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I am absolutely shocked about what's happening with this vaccine. And I, I don't understand. It's like a freight train, right? You're yeah. like, you just can't, you can't stop it. And uh, do you, did you hear about this guy from Pfizer? He was an executive at Pfizer. Uh, he's had yeah. a long history of, of drug development within the industry. And he's, a, he's basically a whistleblower. I, I have his name written down here. I can, if you let me look it up. Um, yeah, and I, the other part while you're looking that up that is still like baffled me is that um, the public, you know, I understand we're not loving this moment. I don't think any of us really are. Um, and it does, yes, something like a vaccine, if it was safe right, exactly. um, and it could get us out, of course, we would right. all want it. But we're Absolutely. not willing to say, hey, it's not ready yet. There's more damage than good. I've been following. Or all there might time. be. We don't know. I mean, the thing right. is, it's just rushed. And it is a very unique and new way to do vaccines. And it's possible. I mean, there's an outside chance that it's marvelous, right? It could be that it's a much better, safer way to manufacture and that it works really well and it has very few side effects, you know, and that it lasts a long time. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but I would love it if it did. Right. Yes. And there's an outside chance that it would because we, again, we just don't know enough. It's just way too fast to put something that different. And to massively vaccinate the entire world's population in such a hurry is really frightening to me. The consequences, if it, if it does go bad, yeah. it's a huge consequence. And, and you know, this guy, Yeadon, Michael Yeadon is his name. Okay. And um, he's, he's really urgently telling people, watch out. And, and one thing he's saying, apparently, is that I, had, I only learned about this yesterday, so it's kind of a little bit fresh, it might be. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I have to look more closely, but um, it really disturbed me because he was talking about. And it makes sense to me that the um, the, the pro, you know the protein that it, that is coded by the vaccine's RNA um, is a um, is a protein that allows the virus to um, to merge with the host, right, so that it can right. get in. And so um, that kind of a protein is similar to a protein that's produced by the placenta, I believe to help the human fertilized egg to implant itself. So it's the same thing of merging together with something, right? This kind of merging process. The needs vaccines kind of, merging with protein. your cells. Yeah, okay. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the fertilized egg uh, settling into the uterus, I believe. And again, I have to go back and look more carefully because I don't, I don't have the full story yet, but it's right. very scary. We'll follow you. Yeah. And then whether... Um, and so there's, a, again, molecular mimicry, because that's how you get autoimmune disease is when you, your, your body produces antibodies that um, against something foreign. And then, but it turns out something native looks the same, looks very similar, has a very similar amino acid sequence. So those antibodies are a little overaggressive and they attack uh, your, your own proteins. And um, mm. if that's true, then one can predict that infertility could be a consequence of COVID-19 vaccine. 
Wow. And um, so, it, it, and they're not studying it at all, apparently, because from what I also heard, and again, this is all has to be fact-checked because it's too new. But I yeah, yeah. And that's, I think it's worth definitely, you know, for sure saying that is, I, everybody's got to think for themselves. That's what I keep yeah, saying. We, is ha- we need own. to be thinking outside the box. We need to be yes, playing with these ideas. And some of them are going to be wrong. We just need to admit that. Yeah. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't go there because we need to understand what's going on. And apparently, uh, what I was told is that the people that they've chosen to, for the experiments that they're running with these vaccines, you can be a young woman as long as you're not pregnant and you're taking birth control, you know, so you're doing some kind of um, oh. birth control. So to opt into the study. To opt into yes. the study. So that's going to make sure that you never test it on pregnant women. You never test it on people who are trying to get pregnant yep. and you hide perhaps the possibility that it's going to cause infertility. So At- as a scientist, an MIT scientist, I just want to point out, how, how long would you like to see st- safety studies done on a vaccine, a new style of vaccine? <laughs> I don't think they've ever done enough safety studies for any of the vaccines. I mean, they're a lot more lax with the vaccines than they are with the drugs, you know, and even the drugs come through with Why major problems. Uh, I think because, they, they, I mean, of course, in the United States, we have this crazy system with the 1986 law where they don't have consequences if the vaccine causes damage that's a huge reason not to care i mean who cares if it causes damage i'm not going to be liable so these people are so so uninterested in humanity you know they don't have any which baffles normal (laughs) yeah it does i don't understand how they can just be so cavalier about people's lives but um i mean the hpv vaccine i don't know how much you've looked into that but that one really really bothers me yeah, I've heard Robert Kennedy Jr. speak on it um, and how there was evidence showing that it was causing death and infertility for girls and they ignored it and continued on. Yeah. So that's all I know, but enlighten me. Yeah, I know this woman, Gail, Gail DeLong, who's a professor in New York City, and she uh, did, wrote a paper um, showing uh, that among married women in the United States who had gotten the uh, that HPV vaccine versus the ones who hadn't, that they had a significantly lower number of um, pregnancies compared to the ones who didn't get the vaccine. So it looks like that HPV is causing infertility, and that would not be surprising. I've looked at a lot of the um, vaccine adverse event reporting system reports on HPV, and there's a lot of even eight-month abortion, like spontaneous miscarriage at eight Mm. months. Wow. So let's finish up with this. I have a couple questions for you. Um, One, and this I think is really bounces off nicely on what we're talking about. What do you do? What do you do inside your head? What do you do for self-care? Like how do you keep yourself going knowing that you are preaching a message that the world does not want to hear? Yeah. You mean, how do I keep myself sane? Yeah. What do you do personally? Yeah. How do you keep yourself sane? Like, you know, your people, there's people like me that adore you and love the work you're doing. And then there's people who are not so excited about what you're saying. (laughs) Corporations that would really like to keep you quiet. How do you, how do you keep yourself going and not get bummed out? I just, I just basically ignore it. I mean, I feel like if they're going to try to tear me down, at least that's, that's publicity. I mean, people are going to get interested in me if I'm someone they're attacking. So I'm like, just take, bring it on. I don't care. You know, it's shocking to me that, that they don't have concern like I do for these autistic kids and these Alzheimer's adults. I mean, it doesn't concern them that there's all this illness and that America has a a medical system in crisis and we can't afford our medical care. I mean, it's just, that doesn't concern them. I mean, I understand why the government doesn't think there's something wrong here. Why don't, I don't, it frustrates me no end that our government 
is completely oblivious. You know, it's as if autism is perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. It's going up every year. That's not a problem. I mean, and you see the school system suffering so much. Yep. And I just, I just am flabbergasted. I mean, I just don't understand how these people can turn a blind eye to what's happening in this country. And the country, you know, it, it was a great country at one time, but I think we're on our last legs. I mean, we're just like being so wiped out by this COVID-19. And if we would just, if the government would just say, you know, get out in the sunshine, take drink some right. orange juice, you know, get some vitamin C, eat some uh, fermented foods. I mean, it would be, and eat organic, of course. I mean, yes. if, we, if the government would be telling people to do those things, we would really have a big difference, I think, in how much we're impacted by this virus. And, and they're just not, they're not, no peep about that. And again, because, you know, they're being funded by the industry that's causing the problems. They don't dare speak up. The media are completely... Yeah you know, silenced. Yeah. I mean, it's just a crazy, crazy no, time. It's crazy. Yeah, I have heard that. So if you could talk to any, uh, I don't know if you, in, if you, you seem like a woman on a mission, you may not even know who your biggest opponent is, but if you have one person in the public eye that absolutely is contradicts what your thinking is and your message, who would that be? And what would you like to say to them? <laughs> and you, you, you can yeah. swear on this show. <laughs> you can say whatever you want, but I, I can think of a few. I'm curious who you yeah. would. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Actually, I don't know. I suppose the top executive of Bayer or Monsanto would be the one I'd like to talk to and kind of talk some sense into. But what would you say to them? <laughs> I probably would try to run the other way and not talk to them because I know how much they're opposed to me and I just don't even want to go there. So I think I'm basically chicken when it comes to these people. <laughs> I feel like there's absolutely no hope of convincing them. Yeah. And they're they're such a staunch enemy that I just don't even want to interact with them. There's nothing that you could because they their mind is already set up. I don't up. think I could have any effect other than just get upset because they're not listening to me. I mean, we went down yeah. to the EPA. There were ten of us we, on our own nickel. We went down to the EPA and presented uh, our our materials on showing how toxic glyphosate is, and it was an awful experience. The EPA. They knew they had to accommodate us, but they basically showed up late, and then they wasted some of our time talking to us about some stuff. So we were very, very rushed. We had very little time. And they, while we were presenting, they were basically like not paying attention. It was very, and then when we were done, they had no questions. I mean, it was the weirdest experience. It was just like, they were like, we have to do this because these people took the effort to come, but we're going to do it as minimal as we can. And then there was no, no consequences whatsoever. Yeah, their mind was, was already really, made really up. really frustrating for yeah. us. What, what does MIT think of your work? Well, that's interesting. And I was definitely worried that MIT might come after me at some point because I certainly am causing trouble. I think it's a pretty liberal place because no one at MIT has told me you can't do this. My boss is quite supportive and she's got a young family. She eats, uh, her family eats organic, you know. Yeah. And so actually I've been very fortunate at MIT and I have a really super fun funding agency that's been funding me for years and years. And um, I just basically told them about <laughs> 12 years ago, I guess, you know, I'm going to shift my research in this direction. Because before that, I was develop developing, you know, dialogue games to teach a second language to a, uh, like teaching Chinese to American uh, English speaking people. I mean, totally different thing. Yeah, you had a, another path. You didn't know what the world had had awaiting <laughs> for you. <laughs> it was so lovely back then. Just yeah, this right. little I've, idea I've... of helping people learn, learn Chinese is like yeah. so sweet, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and I just basically told them, you know, I'm going to switch over to this uh, medical thing because I'm interested in these disease trends and, and toxic chemicals. And they didn't bat an eye. They were like, okay, that's great. So they've been funding me ever since. It's been very easy. That's amazing. That's yeah, amazing. Very fortunate. Who, who's been your biggest inspiration? Who, who have you learned the most from and inspires you? Oh, I really loved Bobby Kennedy Jr. He's so fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
Bell Big Tree. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, they're just uh, so, Zach so good. Bush. Do you know Zach Bush? Oh, yeah. I was just on a, a webinar with him yesterday uh, on a panel with a couple other doctors and adore Zach Bush. He's so great. Yeah. He's so uh, well-spoken and so charismatic. You know, I Agreed. really love him. And he has a really good message. Um, Don Huber, of course, Professor Don Huber. He's over. He's like probably 83 years old. Okay. Still very active. Wow. Um, um, what do you think of the of Dr. Bush's Ion Biome? Is what it's called. Yeah, now. well, I think it's actually very, very successful and very, uh, very good. It appears to be helping a lot of people to uh, straighten out their gut. I think it really works wonders for the gut microbiome. So I think it's probably a very good product. Yeah, I, um, I have found in our clinic that it's really been what that thing that counteracts glyphosate, you know, and it's like, we always tell people there's not really a lot of supplements that you have to be on all the time, but this one is one. Yeah. And, and I should have mentioned it because I was talking about the acetobacter and the fermented foods, but there is yeah. also this fulvic acid, humic acid, which I think are very powerful. And those actually are complex molecules from the soil that trap, uh, apparently they trap certain uh, enzymes that are very sophisticated enzymes that have very generalized capabilities to break down toxic molecules. So I'm suspecting that the enzymes that are trapped inside those fulvic acid may be clearing the glyphosate. I'm hoping that. I really looking for something that would break it down, you know, as yeah. opposed to just push it well, out. Because we've we've seen some amazing results with his products in our mm -hmm. clinic, and when we detox people, it's like you have to be on this. So, what um, what's the best book that you've read this year? Do you read other outside of science? <laughs> do you read anything? For I do, and I just finished a book called The Chemical Age, which was okay. really amazing. The Chemical Age. Have you heard of it? Uh uh. I highly recommend it. I can't tell you who the author is, but uh, the author was actually the uh, descendant of people who had been involved in uh, in that whole um, chemical stuff. So it goes really way back to uh, the early days of chemi chemicals and and all the um, controversy around them and the, how the industry was always trying to um, downplay the toxicity and all the different, you know, all, so uh, I'll check the uh, silent spring, you know, yep. uh, that kind of thing. So it's really good. It's, uh, it's quite um, thorough and uh, interesting, engaging. So yeah, kind of is it going to be depressing? Am I going to come out of it and just be like more like, <laughs> oh, we're messed up? I know. It, it hardly. I don't know if it, know if it mentions glyphosate. So it's like even without glyphosate, you've got all these other. Places. Right. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. What What health habit do you feel like, or health habits you do every day that you're like? this is key. You've mentioned a couple of them, but yeah, certainly sunlight, getting out in the sunlight and also Epsom salt baths. That might be one that you're not, I don't know. If that's a, yeah, that's a great idea. I really like Epsom salt baths because that's a way to get sulfate uh, absorbed through the skin is magnesium sulfate. Yeah. The magnesium is probably also good, but the sulfate um, is overlooked um, as a, uh, it, people don't realize Epsom salts are providing sulfate and sulfate is critically messed up by glyphosate and causing all kinds of problems in the body. So it's a way to get sulfate without having to deal with a dysbiosis in the gut, which can produce things like hydrogen sulfide gas or sulfide that can be toxic. So people who have sulfur sensitivities in particular, I would encourage them to try Epsom salt baths and see if their sulfur sensitivities don't extend to the skin. You know, Great idea. That's a great, I love it. Okay. My last question for you, this is one I ask everybody. Uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, no, this one's easy. This one's easy. Uh, if you had one message that you could share out into the world and get into everybody's brain and it doesn't, it, it can be any message. What would that message be? <laughs> well, I'd like to give a message of hope. I really um, believe that humans have the capacity uh, 
to do what they need to do to fix this mess that we're in right now. And if we can just get enough people, and it's going to be grassroots bottom up, if we can get enough people on board to recognize that we have to do things very, very differently, and then to take the action to do actually do it. So I really admire all the you know regenerative agriculture and organic farmers, the small organic farmers, all of that really turn around our agriculture um, and become so aware of the of the dangers of toxic chemicals that we're always constantly trying to do things without using them. Yeah. And I think it will make such a sweet world. We will just be so much happier and so much healthier. And it'll just be wonderful. So I'm picturing a future time in which we look back on this dark age, you know, the chemical age is what they're going to call it. And they're going to say, how could they have gone so far astray for so long? We don't understand. But now we're we're good. Now we're good. Love it. Oh, my God. I love it. I'm going to visualize that world as well. (laughs) Well, this has been, you know, I've. I've interviewed a lot of people and you were definitely on my top five and I'm just (laughs) such a huge fan and I'm so grateful for the work that you've been doing. And I've been, you know, watching your videos and understanding your message and been able to turn around and apply it to our patients and our online community. So you, you are one of those people. I put you up there with Bobby Kennedy. So I just <laughs> thank you. That's greatly, quite an honor. And I really appreciate the work you're doing too, because people like you are so important for getting uh, us back on board towards a health, healthy path. Yeah. Pathway towards good health. Yeah. My mom taught me that if you have an opinion, don't keep it to yourself. So <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so a good the, one. More, the more I learn, the more I'm like, okay, yes. Like, like how we started this off, you know, it's yes. just really hard to see injustice and you want to, people to wake up and understand. And we, if there's one thing this year has taught us, we are all in this together and we need each other to rise above the, the this moment in so many different ways. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. And keep, thank I you. will keep following you and I will, <laughs> I will keep, uh, I will keep shouting about your work and your website. Does, uh, can we find some of your articles on your website? Yes. Uh, StephanieZenef.net is, uh, is a, um, has links to my MIT webpage where there's a whole bunch of material. I have all kinds of side decks and, um, pe- published peer-reviewed papers and a whole bunch of stuff. So, um, yeah. And of course, if you just search my last name, S-E-N-E-F-F, if you can remember that, you'll find all kinds of podcasts and things like that, as well as various articles about how... Yeah, I'm off base, but hopefully right. you ignore those. But the greatest people uh, are disrupting thought processes. And so I we, wanted to tell you about my book too, which is oh, hopefully please. coming out middle of next year. Oh, beautiful! They keep changing the title, but at the moment, at the moment, the title is "Toxic Legacy: How the oh. Weed Killer Glyphosate Is Destroying Our Health and the Environment." That's the current topic oh. title. So we're still uh, trying to figure that out, but hopefully, middle of next year, uh, okay. it'll come out. When it comes out, will you, yeah, will you send us um, just a message and we will put it across to all of our platforms. I will definitely do that. I'm going to add you to the list of people to let citizens out. That's great. That would be wonderful. Well, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the work you're doing. And um, you truly made my week just to have this conversation. Oh, that's great. I'm so really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you again for all you're doing to help to spread the word, which is so important. Yeah, thank you. Great. And keep shouting. Keep we're fought, we're keep shouting. <laughs> we're drafting behind you. 
Hey, Resetters. I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for all your wonderful reviews and those of you that have left me comments on iTunes. I just greatly appreciate your thoughtfulness and how much you guys are enjoying these episodes. And it, and it seems like you're enjoying them as much as I am enjoying doing them. One of the things that I've learned in just interacting with so many people is that we've really lost the art of deep conversation. And for me, the Resetter Podcast stands for having meaningful conversations with people who are thinking about health, about life, about mindset in a way that we may not be getting on social media or in mainstream media. And so I just want to say, give you guys a shout out and just say thank you for participating in this process with me. Because as much as I absolutely love delivering the information to you, I love even more knowing Knowing that it's impacting your life. So please let us know if there's anything we can do to make this podcast more customized to you, to make it better. We are now officially in season two, and we are working to bring you the best conversations that health influencers have, that mindset changers can give, and to really deliver you something that you're not able to get anywhere else. So from the bottom of my heart, as I always say in my YouTube, from the bottom of my heart, I am deeply deeply appreciative of you. I am deeply grateful to be on this journey with you and let's get healthy together.